Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 48, the book of Matthew, chapter 13, continued. We began last week's lesson with a somewhat long dissertation about the true nature of parables. And that's because in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, this is where Christ's use of parables begins in earnest. So I'm going to briefly review this. One of the most important elements of parables is that they belong only to the Jewish world. That is, parables are a product of Jewish culture, even though literature and some things of similar nature, but they're not the same, occur sparingly in other cultures as well. Now what separates true parables from all other forms of literature that are similar is the inclusion of God. God's will and God's nature and His character, these are at the center of the parables. Another important element is that although the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament, where the parables appear, are in the Greek language, nonetheless, all parables were originally constructed in Hebrew, reflecting their, their thoroughly Jewish origin. So I've demonstrated on numerous occasions that translations from Hebrew to Greek can at times distort what was intended in the original. And yet another translation, then from Greek to English or other languages, adds another layer of difficulty that can further obscure the intended meaning of a passage. Now this reality creates a particular conundrum when you're dealing with parables. Another important element of parables is that they have one, only one, aim or moral. That is, parables are not like allegory, which gives the interpreter a wide range of possible meanings, all of which may be considered as equally worthy and valid. Now, due to the use of allegorical Bible interpretation within Christianity, going back as far as the 4th or 5th centuries, and having become the main form of interpretation and preaching of the Bible in the 21st century, then of course Yeshua's parables get lumped in with this allegorical method and so are automatically subjected to the possibility of having their original intended meaning blocked from our view. Now approaching Jesus' parables as though they are Jewish allegory also comes from the academic mindset that the Greek word for parables, which is parabolis, and the Hebrew word that it's translating, which is mashal, means riddles. And while there is a kernel of historical truth to this claim, in fact it overlooks that over time the meaning of mashal evolved, as do words and, and their meanings in all languages. In the Old Testament, times, one of the, the, the several meanings of mashal was indeed riddle. And the meaning of riddle is a short story that has a hidden or mysterious meaning, but that had changed by Yeshua's day, such that mashal mostly meant parable in the Jewish sense of it. In Jewish culture, as evidenced by the hundreds of rabbinical parables from the 1st through the 5th centuries that can be examined in close detail, parable in no way meant a short story with a hidden or a mysterious meaning. Quite the contrary. A parable was meant to explain. It was a relatively simple way to reduce a complex issue to something understandable and to get across a single point to a common Jewish person. 
But because so many Bible scholars just dismiss the Hebrew and Jewish nature of the Bible and don't want to acknowledge the 100% Jewish nature of Jesus, they have little interest in first century Jewish society and have even less knowledge of Hebrew or rabbinical culture. Therefore, their nearly universal mantra is that parables are essentially riddles with nearly unlimited solutions. Well, I'm here to tell you they're anything but that. Now before we move on, perhaps the most important element of Christ's parables for us to apprehend is that they're meant to illustrate the nature and the character of God. They are intended to help us all to understand what God is like. In Biblical New Testament context, parables were an attempt by Jewish teachers and rabbis to help everyday Jews understand what our supernatural God is like by painting word pictures using the, the natural things that surrounded them to make a comparison. You know, Jesus once went so far as to say in John 14, 9, Yeshua replied to him, Have I been with you so long <clears throat> without your knowing me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? See, while this statement's not a parable, it is certainly aiming for the same goal. The goal is to explain what God is like. It is Yeshua trying to help Philip get a better mental picture of God the Father by comparing Him to something tangible in nature, something that Philip can see and touch, the person of Yeshua. Now the first parable we encounter, which is most popularly known as the parable of the sower, begins in Matthew 13, 3. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We are going to read from verses 1 through 17. <clears throat> that same day Yeshua went out of the house and sat down by the lake. But such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat, and he sat there while the crowd stood on the shore. He told them many things in parables. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell alongside the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky patches where there wasn't much soil. It sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun had risen, the young plants were scorched. Since the roots weren't deep, they dried up. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Others fell into rich soil and produced grain a hundred, sixty, thirty times as much as has been sown. Those who have ears, let them hear. Then the Talmudim, his disciples, came and asked Yeshua, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, Because it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, it's not been given to them. For anyone who has something will be given more, so that he'll have plenty. But from anyone who has nothing, even what he does have will be taken away. Here is why I speak to them in parables. They look without seeing, they listen without hearing or understanding. That is, in them is fulfilled the, proper, uh, the prophecy of Yeshiao, Isaiah, which says, You will keep on hearing, but never understand, and keep on seeing, but never perceive, because the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they barely hear, their eyes they've closed, so as not to see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and do tshuva, to, to repent, so that I could heal them. But you, 
How blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. Yes, indeed, I tell you, many a prophet, many a Sadiq, a holy man, longed to see the things you are seeing, but did not see them, and to hear the things you are hearing, but did not hear them. Now, because of the non-Jewish allegorical worldview of the Christian Bible commentators and teachers have, this parable is usually called the parable of the sower. That's how most of you will know it. In fact, the more appropriate title probably should be something like the parable of the soils or the parable of the hearers. This is because the focus of this parable is not at all on the sower, and it's not even on the seed, per se. Rather, the parable's focus is on the four types of soil, the hearers, and thus four different cases of the soil's reaction, response, interaction with the seed that's spread upon it. And after finishing the parable, in verse 10, the disciples say to Yeshua, Why are you speaking to them in parables? Yeshua answers their question, in verse 11 with, Because it has been given to you to know the secrets of the Kingdom of Heaven, but it's not been given to them. Now he says more, but I, I want to deal with only these two verses for the moment. Now, if a person has the mindset that a parable is a riddle with a hidden meaning, then verses 10 and 11 sure makes it sound as though they're correct. But as I've demonstrated to you, that mindset does not represent the Jewish mindset of the first century, and therefore it doesn't represent Christ's mindset. And so this does not at all mean that what he has said to the crowd is some kind of a cruel riddle that the common folk can't possibly fathom. I mean, so what does Christ mean then by his response to the disciples' question of him when he says that the secrets of heaven are for them but they're not for the others in the crowd? Well, let's work our way through this by beginning with the logical. Why on earth would Jesus tell this crowd, this parable, if His intent was they won't understand what He's saying? They won't get the meaning. I mean, was it to tease them? Was it to make them feel bad for their ignorance? Was it to punish them? Was it to make them look in awe at Him, thinking that only He knows the meaning of this fascinating short story? And if He told this parable for none of these reasons, which is what I claim, then what does Christ mean that His disciples are meant to know the meaning of the parable, but the crowds aren't? So the first question we must ask ourselves is, well, what's the difference between Yeshua's disciples and the crowd? Well, it's only the disciples believe and trust in Christ. Not as Savior yet, but as a messenger from God that brings with Him the Kingdom of God. In contrast, the crowds don't believe any of this. Believing surely must have entailed repentance of sins, something that was at the core of Yeshua's purpose and intent, but it was not what the crowds did. That's why we read of Christ's disappointment in their general response to Him. Therefore, by trusting in Him, Yeshua's disciples became equipped to penetrate the mysteries of the Kingdom of Heaven, but the others, who are not His disciples, could not. Still, since the crowds are not able to comprehend the deeper things, Yeshua is not going to abandon them. 
Rather, He will teach. He will teach them using simple parables because they are meant for those with lesser ability to understand due to their lack of trust in Him. Now remember, parables are neither mysterious riddles nor direct exegetical Torah teaching. They are word pictures. They are word pictures designed to help the common man understand what's God, what God is like, also what His kingdom is like. Most of the crowd that was listening to Jesus would have understood the effects of some seed falling upon the various kinds of ground. Simple. Simple. In verse 12, Yeshua continues explaining to His disciples His reason for speaking to the crowds in parables. He puts it in terms of a proverb, if you would. It is that anyone who has something will be given more until that person has plenty. But for someone who has nothing, even that's going to be taken from him. Mysterious? Hardly. Any common Jew living in that era would understand. This is an illustration based on what everyone observed and lived out. In the shot, the simple sense, a person who has something, meaning a reasonably well-off person, will of course use his resources to acquire more. But a person who has nothing, a poor person, has no means to acquire more. So those who have nothing are vulnerable to what little they do possess taken away from them. It works similarly in the spiritual sense. In the remez, the hint, the underlying sense, having a goodly amount of trust in God opens the door for even more trust. Having a deficit of trust in God likely means that whatever little trust you have will eventually evaporate and you'll have none. It's the natural state of human beings to have no knowledge of the spirit world or of what God is like, especially not of what's coming to the world in the future, the end times. In the current context, typical humans, Jews for the time being, have no means to understand or to even know about the existence of the Kingdom of Heaven on earth. The only way ever for a human being to know the divine truth is when it is a gift from God. While this gift is given freely, that doesn't mean it comes without preconditions. And the precondition is that one is to trust in God and in His Son, Yeshua. How does this happen? Well, one must seek God, hear the message, the seed, from a messenger, the sower, of this good news, and then act upon it. There's no other way. There's no plan A and plan B. Now, to help you visualize this point, I want to tell you a story about my wife, Becky's father, who was long ago deceased. One time we were visiting him in West Virginia and staying in his home, and we happily noticed a Bible sitting on his end table. But we also knew through his son, who lived just down the road, that he hadn't been to church for so long no one in the family ever recalled when he might have been. Now, Becky's father was an intelligent, well-educated man. He was a college graduate. He retired as a school teacher. And when she asked her father about that Bible, he said he tried reading it more times than he could count, but it, would, it just frustrated him because he could not make any sense of it. It was just like gobbledygook. No, he of course could read the words, 
but their meaning so eluded him that every time he tried, he'd just give up. Well, some years later, just weeks before he passed, sensing, I think, that his time was very near, he went to with his son to the family church, went forward, confessed his sin and his condition before God, and he was saved. We heard of it. And a couple of weeks later, we made a trip there to speak with him, and I suppose kind of see for ourselves. He seemed like a different man. But what was really amazing was that we looked and we saw that same Bible on the end table. And I asked him about it. And he said he reads it every day because suddenly those words make sense to him and he understands. I have read the works of more than a few Bible commentators who didn't believe in God or in the spiritual realm. As strange as that may seem to some of you, it isn't all that unusual any longer. They approach the Bible mostly intellectually, often from a language translation viewpoint, trying to get the words exactly right, and then they would offer their conclusions. Now often I was just stunned at how these brilliant scholars could uncover a truly better understanding of a word or a phrase, but get the meaning of it so wrong. The reason for this irony is best summed up in what Jesus said to His disciples. It has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but it's not been given to them. Davies and Allison in their commentary on Matthew, put it this way regarding what Yeshua said in verse 12, Knowledge is rewarded by knowledge. Ignorance is rewarded by ignorance. Like begets like. If you don't worship the God of the Bible, you have no chance of obtaining the meaning of the Holy Scriptures because God won't gift you with the ability. And since Christ's advent, when the kingdom of heaven arrived, unless you trust in His Son, Yeshua, you have no chance of obtaining the meaning of the kingdom of heaven and what lay ahead in the future. Now, further, as those of you who are studying with, with Torah class, know trusting Christ enables you. It even encourages you to learn and understand the deeper mysteries of the kingdom, to prepare for the things that are coming. Whereas those who don't trust Him might listen, but they hear only nonsense. And even more in tune with the context of Matthew chapter 13, when you believe and follow man-made doctrine or tradition as though it was God's Word, which is what the Pharisees do, you too will not be able to comprehend the truth about the kingdom of what's coming, even though you think you might. This is more than sad. It's very dangerous to your spiritual health and to your eternal future. Well, in verse 13, Yeshua offers yet another reason for why he speaks in parables to the Jewish crowds that, that currently don't trust in him. He paraphrases Isaiah 6-9 when he says, They look without seeing and listen without hearing or understanding. And he then continues by saying that these unbelieving crowds are a fulfillment of Isaiah 6, specifically verses 9 and 10. Here is how it is worded from Isaiah's Old Testament, Testament prophecy. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. He said, Go and tell this people, Yes, you hear, but you don't understand. Oh, you certainly see, but you don't get the point. Make the heart of this people sluggish with fat, stop up their ears, shut their eyes. Otherwise, seeing with their eyes, hearing with their ears, understanding with their hearts, they might repent and be healed. 
Now, what we read in Isaiah seems to say something like, because your eyes are shut and your ears are stopped up at your own willful choice, then I, God, I'm going to punish you by making sure it stays that way, so that you will never repent, and therefore you will never come to understand. But that isn't what Christ seems to be saying. In His loose quote of Isaiah, He seems to be saying that because the people are willfully blind and deaf, then the repenting that they ought to do naturally doesn't happen. In other words, the way Isaiah 6 says it, it is God intervening to prevent those Jews who have chosen to, chosen, chosen to be deaf and blind to the divine truth from ever repenting and thus finding the truth, versus Christ making it that it is those Jews who are deaf and blind to the divine truth that are doing it to themselves, but if they choose to stop, <laughs> stop being deaf and blind, then they can repent and be made whole. And when they're made whole, then they'll finally be able to grasp the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven of the future times, the end times. But, says Yeshua in verse 16, you disciples, you're different from them. You're different from them. You're blessed. You're blessed with open eyes and open ears. And even more, the disciples are said to hear. That is, they shma in Hebrew. They heard and they acted upon the knowledge that was given to them as a gift from God as a result of them becoming followers of Christ. The disciples are therefore given to see the coming to fruition before their own eyes of what the prophets prophesied so long ago. But they were never privileged to see it come about. Even more, he says, they are learning about end times things that their eyes may never behold. I also want to highlight that it is because the kingdom of heaven has arrived, with Yeshua as the center of that arrival, that suddenly things about the future, the end times, now they can be known. That is why as believers, and therefore as members of the kingdom of heaven, in the 21st century, see, we have the opportunity to know quite a lot about the end times. Now remember, but for a precious few, the Jewish people to this day still do not understand that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. For them, the arrival of the kingdom of heaven is marked by the entrance into a golden age for a revived Israel. It's a physical phenomenon that is marked by the surfacing of a warrior-like leader like David as the Messiah that will lead Israel through military action to become a widespread and powerful kingdom that is the envy of the world. Now, evidence of this important understanding that we will not have the correct knowledge of God's kingdom unless He gifts it to us. And this by means of trusting His Son and then diligent pursuit of the knowledge. This is fundamental to the thoughts of later apostles and writers that form the New Testament. Further, just as first century believers would learn about future things, but would never live to see most of them. So what was and will be for all of us, except for the final generation? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. The prophets who prophesied about this gift of deliverance that was meant for you pondered and inquired diligently about it. They were trying to find out the time the circumstances to which the Spirit of the Messiah in them was referring in predicting the Messiah's sufferings and the glorious things to follow it. It was revealed to them that their service when they spoke about these things was not for their benefit, it was for yours. 
And these same things have now been proclaimed to you by those who communicated the good news to you through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, get your minds ready for work. Keep yourselves under control. Fix your hopes fully on the gift that you will receive when Yeshua the Messiah is revealed. Hebrews 11, verses 12 and 13. Therefore this one man, who was virtually dead, fathered descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as the grains of the sand on the seashore. All these people kept on trusting until they died without receiving what had been promised. They had only seen it, welcomed it from a distance, while acknowledging that they were aliens and temporary residents on this earth. Well, after saying all these things, Yeshua now says to His disciples, He is going to explain this parable to them. Let's reread his explanation. Open your Bibles back up to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 18 and just read through verse 23. Follow along with me, please. So, listen to what the parable of the sower means. Whoever hears the message about the kingdom but doesn't understand it is like the seed sown along a path. The evil one comes and seizes what was sown in his heart. The seed sown on rocky ground is like a person who hears the message and accepts it with joy at once, but has no root in himself. So he stays on for a while, but as soon as some trouble or persecution arises on account of the message, he immediately falls away. Now the seed sown among, sown among thorns stands for someone who hears the message, but he's choked by the worries of the world the deceitful glamour of wealth, so that it produces nothing. However, what was sown on rich soil? This is the one who hears the message and understands it. Such a person will surely bear fruit, a hundred or sixty or thirty times what was sown. So says Yeshua, the seed in the parable is like the Word of God. Specifically, the seed is the message about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the four types of soil represent four types of hearers. That is, four different reactions, four different responses to folks hearing the word of God about the kingdom. The first is like the soil of a pathway, of a road. The seed never takes root, it just kind of lays there on a hard surface, unable to take root, therefore allowing Satan to come along and just scoop it up and take it away. You know, paths and roads in Yeshua's day were salted in order to kill the vegetation and keep the path clear for easier traveling. So the seed that falls onto the ears of a hearer whose mind is hard-packed and poisoned like a pathway is DOA dead on arrival. This kind of hearer is not in the least open to hearing God's Word, and so should he happen to even hear it, its possible effect is immediately stifled, and it's taken away by Satan. Now, the next type of hearer, that's compared to rocky soil. The seed falls onto rocky soil, and while there's just enough nutrients and softness of the soil for the seed to send out its roots. Alas, the soil is more rock than earth. So at first things look good. You know, it looks like God's Word's been accepted and it has a home. But quickly, the rock overwhelms the good soil and the seedling dies. See, this represents the person who hears God's Word of Truth, and immediately goes bananas. This is the one that runs to the Christian store and buys one of everything. They buy not one, they buy three Bibles. 
They purchase a fish symbol decal. They stick it on their car bumper. They say, God bless you to everybody. They get on the phone. They dial everyone they know about how they just got saved, what a different person they are now, and all this in just a matter of hours. And how wonderful it is. And how they need to drop what they're doing and do the same thing as he or she did. They go to church every time the doors are open. They volunteer for everything. Then just as suddenly, by the time that credit card bill arrives, they revert. Turns out, their enthusiastic response was mostly a huge emotional experience. And we all know how emotions work. Here now, gone in 60 seconds. So the minute that it turns out that salvation doesn't include having all your problems immediately solved, the emotion turns from joy to disappointment. The person walks away from what they so strongly professed for a brief time that they believed. Now the third case. This is that of the hearer that is like the soil infested with weeds and thorns. The seed falls on the ground that is actually pretty rich in nutrients, so much so that the weeds thrive too. The seed sends out roots, it begins to grow at a good rate, but then as the plant gets bigger, it starts to come into competition with the weeds. This stunts its growth. So the plant never matures to bear the good fruit it was supposed to. In fact, the plant actually takes on some of the characteristics of the weeds. But the weeds never take on any characteristics of the plant. So this is the case of a person who accepts God's Word and they start to grow in it. Slowly and certainly they begin to understand that their former ways were antithetical to God's ways. But because this person continues to hang around the weeds, the things of this world that corrupt, the people of this world that mock and deny God, they turn around and begin to look a lot like those weeds. Likely this transformation is at first almost imperceptible, sort of a frog in the kettle experience. People like this only occasionally recognize or admit they've gone off the spiritual rails and they're headed for a crack up. They have just enough knowledge of God and His Word to be dangerous to themselves. They typically find ways to rationalize their wrong behaviors, wrong beliefs with profound words like, well, what sin is for you isn't necessarily sin for me. Oh, I love that one. Or, I only do what the Holy Spirit says and He hasn't told me to stop doing such and such. In the end, this person produces nothing of value to the kingdom and it's back to square one. Now James, Jacob actually, Jesus' biological brother, addressed just such a case. In James 5, 19 and 20, My brothers, if one of you wanders from the truth and someone causes him to return, you should know that whoever turns a sinner from his wandering path will save him from death and cover many sins. Final case, the fourth. Well, this is of the hearer compared to a seed that falls on fertile ground. The seed sends out roots, it grows, the soil and the rains nourish it, it blossoms into a wonderful, healthy plant. This is the situation whereby we have a sincere hearer of the Word who, upon hearing and believing, repents, changes his mind, his ways, they understand the critical importance of the message of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. They embrace the seed, the word of God, and they're never the same again. This same person multiplies what they've been given, a hundred, sixty, thirtyfold, and in fact, that's the job of every believer. We're, we're not supposed to get saved and then settle in for the big sleep. 
We are to multiply. We are to be fruitful for the kingdom. That is, we are to become workers for the kingdom and become the sowers of the seed for the next fertile field we encounter. Now the message of this parable then is only one thing. It is that what happens to the message of the good news depends entirely upon the soil it lands on. It explains why such a wonderful divine message falls on deaf ears, never thrives more often than not. The reason is that people like the four kinds of soil aren't all the same. Every hearer will not respond in the same way or at all to God's message. It's not the fault of the sower. It's not the fault of the seed as to which kind of soil the message falls upon, nor what happens to the seed once it's sown. It's entirely up to the soil. It's up to the individual hearer about what happens next. The crowd that Yeshua spoke to would have understood the parable, because they thoroughly understood the agricultural relationship of soil to seed. That is, it is the condition of the soil that will dictate the amount of produce and the abundance of harvest. So why did Yeshua take the time to explain it in such detail? to His disciples, because He told them more than only the parable. Now remember that this is a disappointed and probably tired Jesus preaching this parable. He's a -a one-of-a-kind Sadiq, a Jewish holy man, who laments that as hard as He's worked to give people miracle after miracle as well as His profound message of deliverance and a good future, only a few seem to have responded the way He hoped. At the same time, in His divine wisdom, He knows the reality of fallen humanity. He knows that His disciples, who are tasked with bringing this same message to the masses, will also not have broad success. They too will suffer slander disappointment, maybe even have some self-doubt when their enthusiasm for God and His kingdom kingdom is just not shared by as many as they had hoped. See, Yeshua was using this parable to prepare His disciples, to let them know that the relatively few in number who will accept the message, it's not going to be their fault. And at the same time, He's letting those who form the crowd and those Jewish religious authorities who lead the crowd, let them know that the blame for their ignorance of the kingdom of heaven falls squarely upon them if they refuse the message. This is something that Isaiah's prophecies focused on. As His followers today, see, we need to keep in mind that we are only the couriers. It's not our message we carry. It's God's. Further, we can't make the soil, the hearer that our message falls upon, behave or respond in any particular way. Yet we are to faithfully continue to sow the seed upon every type of soil. And for those of you who are seekers and not yet believers, understand that this parable is primarily a message to you. You're the soil. God's not going to blame the sower or the seed that you reject the message. He's going to blame you. It's going to be upon your head alone that all the consequences will fall. So Yeshua now tells the crowd another parable. Open your Bibles back up again to chapter 13. We're going to read verses 24 through 30. 24 through 30, chapter 13. Yeshua put before them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, then went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads of grain, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. The servant said, that where, Then do you want us to go and pull them up? But he said, No, because if you pull up the weeds, you might uproot some of the wheat at the same time. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers to collect the weeds first, tie them in bundles to be burned, but to gather the wheat into my barn. Notice how once again the parable or the background of this parable is agricultural. And again, it's about sowing seed. Jesus always considers his audience when he speaks to people. In this case, his audience remains Galileans, country folk. Yeshua begins by using a standard formula for a parable. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to, is like, he starts out, a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now many of his parables are specifically to give his listeners a handle on what the kingdom of heaven on earth is like. This is important because the standard knee-jerk understanding of a kingdom naturally is about something tangible. That is, a visible kingdom on visible land led by a visible king. But the kingdom of heaven, while having similarities to a typical earthly kingdom, is fundamentally different at least during the current age, the kingdom of heaven is spiritual, yet it lives unseen within its members. The parable of the tares, the parable of the weeds, is similar to the previous parable, but it addresses a different subject. That subject is evil and its prince, Satan. Now, before we address the parable in detail, we first need to grasp that for now, in a sense, the earth is Satan's kingdom. Naturally, God is the ruler above all, including Satan. Satan has boundaries, he has limits set by the Father. The issue is not at all agreed upon within the church. However, taking God at His word, the matter is pretty clear. It's only man-made doctrine that muddies the waters. Isaiah gives us, gives us a comprehensive account of Satan's fall and what his desires are. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, How did you come to fall from the heaven's morning star, son of the dawn? How did you come to be cut to the ground, conquerors of nations? You thought of yourself, I will scale the heavens. I will raise my throne above God's stars. I will sit on the mount of assembly far away in the north. I will rise past the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In the New Testament, Yeshua explains something so very important for us to comprehend. In John 12, 31, He says, now is the time for this world to be judged. Now the ruler of this world will be expelled. No lesser authority than the Son of God says Satan has been the ruler of this world, the earth. However, a process has begun to change that. And it began when Christ and the kingdom of heaven arrived, and then it accelerated at the cross. Just as the kingdom of heaven comes about as a long process, and we are currently 2,000 years along in the process, so is the expulsion of Satan as the prince, the ruler of this world, well along in his process. The end of our current age is the final moment of transition from the earth being 
Satan's kingdom to fully becoming God's kingdom. Paul acknowledges the reality of Satan's evil control over this world. In Ephesians 2.1, you used to be dead because of your sins and acts of disobedience. You walked in the ways of the Olam Hazeh, this present world, and you obeyed the ruler of the powers of the air who is still at work among the disobedient. In 2 Colossians 4.4, they did not come to trust because the God of the present world has blinded their minds in order to prevent them from seeing the light shining from the good news about the glory of the Messiah who is the image of God. The Apostle John joins with Paul in saying the same thing about Satan in 1 John 5.19. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The final nail in Satan's coffin happens at the final judgment. His kingdom comes crashing down in a grand finale that we call the Apocalypse. The problem is that he's very active right now. Satan's still recruiting members to his kingdom, quite successfully I might add. And this is front and center in Christ's parable of the tares. So, what's the difference between the parable of the sower and the parable of the tares? It is that Yeshua explains in the sower parable that it is each individual's responsibility as a hearer to choose good over evil. But in the tares parable, Satan is the real spoiler. Satan shares in the responsibility for potential followers of Christ to be disenfranchised from the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, just as Satan shall be destroyed in the end, so along with him will be those who choose him over God, even if it's unwittingly. Well, we'll return to this parable next time.